everyone. My name is Stephanie Smith, host of the Connection Place podcast, where we connect our heart's passion for God with our mind's understanding of Scripture, where we come together in the place where Christ longs to connect with us, His Word. In today's third episode of the Luke 5020 plan, we're diving into the first part of Luke chapter 4, where Jesus finally starts His public ministry. But I think you'll be surprised or maybe not, that it's not a straight road to getting there, because right after Jesus is baptized, and before Jesus can even get started doing the work he's on the earth to do, he's taken straight into the wilderness. In just these first 21 verses, we see Jesus go through a lot of difficult things, even though he's fully on heaven's mission. Let's get to it. As a quick recap, in Luke chapter 3, we saw John the Baptist baptize Jesus in the Jordan River. Remember that as Jesus was being baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on him in the physical appearance of a dove, and the voice of God spoke from heaven, telling everyone that this is his beloved Son, with whom he is well pleased. And so here, at the start of chapter 4, we are picking right up where we left off from that very moment. Let's read together. Then Jesus left the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority, because it has been given over to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. All right, so let's zoom out here before we go any further and start digging into the text. What's happening at a high level? Basically, Jesus has just been baptized and is full of the Holy Spirit, and it is the Holy Spirit himself who leads Jesus right into the wilderness. Jesus fasts for 40 days, and then at the end of those 40 days, Who comes along but the devil, ready to try his hand at Jesus now that Jesus is getting ready to start his public ministry? The devil throws three temptations at Jesus, and Jesus rejects them all. Then the devil, defeated for the moment, leaves Jesus alone. Now let's dig into the text a little bit deeper. What do we notice? Well, right away, I notice that Jesus is both full of the Holy Spirit and then taken by the Holy Spirit right into the wilderness. I would argue that more often than not, 
the wilderness seasons of our lives are not caused by the enemy, even though it might feel that way, and though they might catch his attention, because clearly God has something in mind for us in those seasons. And usually, whatever it is that God's looking to do in us is meant for the secret place between us and God, not for the world's consumption. These times of feeling alone, isolated, cast out, seeking, not feeling settled or sure, maybe feeling like God is taking us somewhere that we don't understand and can't see clearly. These are the times that often build in us a faith and a character that can't be built in any other way. And so we see it here with Jesus. Thankfully, most of my wilderness seasons at least involve some amount of food, because I also notice, naturally, that Jesus hasn't eaten for any one of these 40 whole days. As someone who struggles with fasting just one meal, let alone for one whole day, this is insane to me. My human mind can't comprehend how Jesus was able to survive this, and I can't imagine how Jesus was disciplined enough to not be constantly focused on food during this whole stint. It's just impressive, honestly. Then, at the end of the 40 days, Jesus is hungry. Well, yeah, duh, of course he is. And who is on the scene, and arguably one of Jesus' weakest and most vulnerable human moments to date, but the devil himself? The Hebrew word for Satan means to oppose, obstruct, or accuse. The Greek term, which is what we're dealing with here in the New Testament, literally means adversary. In the New Testament, it also refers to a title or a name, the Satan. So when we talk about the devil, who is also known as Satan, here is who and what we are dealing with. The adversary of God, accuser, the enemy, evil one, father of lies, Lucifer, tempter. He's the opposer of our souls connecting to God and being with him forever. The devil wants to do anything to get back at God, and as any parent can attest, one very effective way to do that is to come after his kids, and that means us. We see the devil try to tempt Jesus with three different temptations. The temptation to prove he's the son of God by satisfying his hunger needs with bread created from stones. The temptation to avoid the cross completely, which of course Jesus knew was coming to short-circuit his route to having authority and ruling and reigning over the world by giving his allegiance to the devil, and the temptation to test God's faithfulness and God's word by throwing himself down from the temple. A little note that connects some scripture dots here. This is just my opinion, but I think we can also see here a connection to the warning in John's first letter against the lust of the flesh in this case, the temptation of the flesh to create and eat bread, the lust of the eyes, in this case, the temptation to rule over all the kingdoms of the world, and the pride of life, in this case, the temptation to test God to save his life. We can also see the enemy trying to persuade Jesus that if he's the son of God, he can and should be able to use that favor for his own needs and wants. Which, of course, the enemy also does all of this with us. 
But Jesus ain't here to play with the devil, and not only withstands these temptations, but gives us a good example to follow for our own lives. Notice how Jesus doesn't hem and haw. He doesn't go through a bunch of antics and tactics to disarm his enemy. He doesn't lose his cool or feel the need to explain himself. He doesn't even have a real conversation with the enemy. He literally just relies on the truth of scripture, and typically in about 10-word responses, give or take. This is instructive for us because the thing that matters most when it comes to dealing head-on with the devil is staying true to who we are and whose we are, is not allowing the devil's mind games to throw us off what we know to be true. And a really good strategy is to just not entertain him at all. Don't even have a conversation with the devil. Just consult the truth of scripture and keep it moving, people. We can also notice through what's happening here that the devil is rarely going to trick us through outright means that are so obviously bad for us. Very often, he's going to start with half-truths and things that seem legitimate. Here we see that the devil can even use scripture itself to try to lure us. He did used to live in heaven, after all. Check out Revelation 12 for the full story of what happened there. And he did this very same thing to Eve in the garden by questioning, did God really say that? Did God really mean what he said to you? Satan twisted God's word against Eve to deceive Eve and was successful. And he tries a similar trick here with Jesus but fails. It's safe to say that at some point, Satan will try to do something like this to us, especially in moments of weakness and doubt. So what do we do about this? And how can we be successful against such an opponent? Because remember, the devil has been at this a long time. He's going to be very, very skilled with his whole bag of tricks by now. And while that may be a sobering thought, we can remember that we are never alone. I like to think of it this way. Being aware that I have an enemy who opposes my soul and the things of heaven on this earth helps me to pick my battles and know who I am fighting against. But I don't want to focus on the devil. Scripture tells us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It tells us that we are seated in heavenly places. This means we are seated above the powers and principalities and dark forces that are at work here on earth. So keeping my focus on Jesus is always my winning strategy. From his vantage point, I can see more clearly. I can keep my eyes on the prize and be aware of the big picture instead of getting mired in the muck of the battlefield where I don't belong. And in those moments, where I am simply not strong enough to fight my own battles, I can rest assured that Jesus is. He is strong enough, and he is fighting for me. Also, in times of temptation, testing, and dealing with the enemy's lies, having a storehouse of the word in our hearts and minds can come in really handy. As we read scripture daily, we can pray and believe that it will be stored up as treasure within us and thus available to help us in the exact right moments when we need them. The more familiar with scripture we are, the more we can readily call on it when we need it most. 
the more the Holy Spirit can use it within us for our advantage. Ephesians 6 is a great scripture reference that teaches us much about how we can be defensive and offensive in our approach to these supernatural battles. It says this, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Note that in this scripture, Paul is telling us that our fight isn't against people, but against the enemy's schemes. That guy is always scheming, and he is always scheming against us. And while certainly some people have fallen in deep with the enemy in his ways, we know, because scripture tells us, that God so loves the world, the whole world. It's why he sent Jesus in the first place. He loves all of us and wants all of us back in his family. So when we face trials with other human beings and want to fight back against them, we need to come back to this scripture. This scripture tells us what to do. To remember our true enemy, to put on our full armor, and to stand firm. Not fight back, but to stand firm. To pray and stay alert. And in the process, to fix our eyes on Jesus as we've already talked about. Did you notice that in this whole passage, there's only one offensive weapon listed here? That's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That means that our weapon is the truth, and we are to yield it in conjunction with our feet, which are sandaled and ready with the gospel of peace. We aren't to use God's Word to wound other people, even people who have wounded us. We are to use God's Word as truth, truth that seeks to share the gospel of peace with those around us. This does not mean we accept abuse or tolerate consistently bad behavior from people. No, no. Boundaries are a good and important tool, and we see them at use in other places in Scripture. But it does mean that we don't respond in kind. It means we use this strategy not to war and fight, but to stand firm in what is good and true, and keep on praying to our advocate, Jesus, for his help. I can say that this strategy has worked for me every time. When I have been wronged and tried to take matters into my own hands and right the situation myself, I've often just made it worse. But when I've trusted Romans 12, which tells us to never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
When I've trusted Isaiah 54, which tells us not only that no weapon formed against us shall prosper, but also that our vindication is directly from the Lord himself. When I've stood firm in what and who I know to be true, with my full armor of God on, and prayed in the faith and let God handle it, oh yeah, I have seen him come through every single time, without exception. It may not have happened as quickly as I wanted, or in the way I wanted it to, but he did handle it. And always I am overcome by the awareness that God really does know what he's doing. And he really does fight for me in a way that also fights for others and against evil. This builds my faith even more. One last note on this section. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about facing temptation here. It's one thing to remember our armor in battles that take place outside of ourselves. It's another thing entirely to deal with the battle of our will and flesh against the battle of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 is an amazing, amazing, and encouraging chapter in this regard. I would encourage you to go and read it. But yeah, I think we can all relate that temptation is so tempting. The battles within us to resist the sin that so easily entangles us, can be probably the most difficult battles we face on this earth. And that's why the enemy tries to use temptation to lure us, to make little compromises here and there, until we have finally strayed so far from God that he can trap us. But again, we can remember Jesus' example here, and we can also keep in mind a few things about temptation that can help us. When faced with temptation, it can often be very tempting to put the blame for that on God, especially for temptations and sin habits that seem to consistently overwhelm us. God, why did you make me this way? God, why can't I get over this? God, where is my breakthrough? I've had my fair share of conversations with God that sound just like that. But ultimately, though, the truth of Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians, that no temptation has overtaken us except what is common to mankind, and that God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. But when we are tempted, he will provide a way out so that we can endure it. These are both sobering and encouraging words. I would encourage you in this moment to remember that when God says something, it is not to condemn you, because Romans 8.1 tells us that there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. It is not to make you feel bad that your willpower has just not cut it and that you are somehow a failure. No, no. We in and of ourselves can't defeat our own sin, but Christ in us, that's a different story. He changes the game because he changed the game on the cross. And that change lasts forever. And that includes inside of you. Also, I would encourage you to read Romans 7, a chapter I relate to so much. Paul, in this chapter, laments over not being able to overcome his flesh, that he keeps doing what he doesn't want to and keeps not doing what he does want to. But he ends with this, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, because it is Jesus who has defeated our sin 
and offered us complete forgiveness. Speaking of Paul, he's the one who had the thorn in his side that he asked God to remove three times. Do you remember this passage in 2 Corinthians? Paul tells us that, instead of breakthrough, God granted him grace. God told Paul that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God doesn't condemn us for being weak humans. Indeed, other scriptures tell us that God knows our frame, that we are literally made from dust. He is mindful of that about us. The only perfect human who ever lived and will live is Jesus. And so, yeah, we are desperately in need of God's grace every day of our lives. And thankfully, mercifully, he gives it so freely. I will never, ever forget in my time of deep, dark sin, when I had wandered so far away from God and couldn't hardly recognize myself anymore, I asked God to give me the grace to walk away, to walk away from the sin that had ensnared me. And I truly thought in that moment that it would be impossible because I had strayed so far and it had such a hold on me. But yet, God did. He gave me the grace to walk away from the life of sin I had been leading. I still, to this day, don't really know how. It's not like it was easy. It was still tempting. But something had shifted. God's grace was indeed sufficient for me. One last note on this. Remember that in Lamentations, Scripture tells us that God's mercies are new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness. I don't know how many times I've clung to this truth in the dark nights where I've been lamenting over a situation, and that includes my own sin. But one thing the enemy would want us to believe is that we can stray too far from God, that we can finally do enough damage to our relationship with Him that we can never go back, that it would be easier, better, more logical to turn away from God this unknowable God of justice and judgment. But scripture is clear that this is the last thing God wants. If the whole of scripture shows us anything, it's that God wants us to come back to him. David shows us that in Psalm 51, where he runs to God to repent, even after committing adultery, rape, and murder. Huge sins. Sins that for sure still had consequences, as they should have, because God is still a God of justice and judgment, after all. But that doesn't mean that God didn't forgive David, or that God stopped loving David. And that doesn't mean that God won't forgive or can't love you. And it's always better to face our consequences and life choices with God than without Him. We can always, always repent and receive of the new mercies of God each and every day each and every moment if we need them. No matter what, don't run away from God. Run to God for forgiveness, salvation, to be your strong tower and fortress. Hebrews tells us we can come boldly to the throne of grace for mercy and help in our time of need. Let's do that as part of our winning strategy against the temptations of the enemy. All right. So let's move on to the next section of this text, where Jesus starts his public ministry. 
Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. Okay, so this is a short piece of text, which should be pretty easy to zoom out on. Jesus' time in the wilderness and being tempted by Satan finishes, and from there he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about Jesus spreads throughout the area, and perhaps that's because he is now teaching in their synagogues and being praised by everyone. So here we have, through Luke's account, just two quick verses that jumpstart Jesus' public ministry. Jesus has, to this point, been born in miraculous and spirit-filled circumstances. He's grown up in the favor of God and man. He's been baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness and had the Holy Spirit rest upon him in the process. And he's then been through the trials, tribulations, and testing that comes with a wilderness season, which again was brought upon him by the Spirit. He was also tempted by Satan. So at 30 years old, And having gone through all these things, Jesus is now finally ready to formally and officially start his ministry. We don't quite know what that entails yet, but we are given to understand that the news about him is spreading rapidly through the area. And technically it doesn't say why people are talking about him, but I think we can presume that it's because he's teaching in the synagogues. Again, the text here doesn't tell us what he's teaching or what people are talking about, But he is teaching, and they are talking about him. And not only that, but he's being praised by everyone. So that leads me to question if perhaps what he's teaching is probably not all that controversial just yet at this moment in time. We know that changes, because we know, even starting as soon as this next section of scripture we're about to cover, that not everyone is a fan of his. But at least for the moment, Luke says that everyone is praising him for his teaching. I have to say, I would have loved to be present for one of these teachings. Was he eloquent? We know he was spirit-filled, which meant his power could be evident somehow through his words, even if the people might not really know why they were drawn to him. Other areas of scripture tell us that people were amazed at how Jesus could teach with such authority and power. So that's probably what's happening here. And likely, Jesus is still too new on the scene to be considered a threat or a problem by anyone just yet. All right, so let's get to the last portion of scripture for today's episode. For the sake of time, and to stick to the 20-ish verses aspect of this Luke 50-20 plan, we're going to cover through to verse 21, which will take us to the middle of this next story. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. 
Oof, talk about a cliffhanger. So let's zoom out and talk about what's happening here. Jesus comes to Nazareth, his hometown. We're honing in on a particular Sabbath day where he's come to the synagogue and he stands up to read. Luke says this is something he typically or usually does. Someone hands in the scroll of Isaiah because the scriptures were contained in scrolls at this point in history. They didn't have nicely printed and contained Bibles like we do in modern times. And Jesus finds the particular passage he's looking for. Jesus lands on the section of scripture that talks about the spirit of the Lord is on me and all that entails, preaching the good news, release to the captives, sight for the blind, setting the oppressed free, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolls up the scroll and sits down, and all eyes are fixed on Jesus. Jesus says, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Boom, mic drop. Okay, so awesome. One thing of note is that we can assume by this point that it's usual for Jesus to be teaching in the synagogues, because this is what Luke tells us. He wants to make it clear that what Jesus starts doing is the usual order of things and expected. But quickly enough, things become unexpected. Let's see how that happens. The first way these things shift into the unexpected begs us to ask this question. Why did Jesus pick this particular passage? The text doesn't tell us why he chose this passage, just that he did. Marvin Vincent in Word Studies in the New Testament makes this compelling argument around the use of the word found here, as if by chance, reading at the place where the role opened of itself and trusting to divine guidance. So perhaps the Holy Spirit did a little helping out here for the big picture of Jesus' ministry? In which case, we can certainly understand how following the Holy Spirit's prompting might lead us to do things that by human standards may seem weird or out of order or inconvenient or unexpected. That's not to say that things should get crazy and off the rails. God is not a God of confusion or chaos, but of peace after all. And even just based on the creation story, we can understand that God brings order to things that are disordered and disconnected. But God is also God and his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So, my point is this, we should stand ready, as Jesus was in this instance, to allow the Holy Spirit to guide us in moments where we might have made a different choice. The second reason of why things shift into the unexpected here is after reading this incredible section of scripture, which, for information, can be found in Isaiah 61, which is one of my personal favorites and which I highly recommend you give a read as a companion to this episode. But after reading this incredible section of scripture and making these incredible claims of anointing to preach good news and break chains, open eyes and set captives free, he then just sits down. I'm not sure if this is customary, but it would seem that something Jesus does here warrants a reaction of surprise because it says that all the people's eyes were fixed on Jesus as he sat down. Or perhaps it was just the Holy Spirit's presence filling the room. Jesus had everyone's attention because the presence of God was drawing them to him. But the third and most important reason of why things shift into the unexpected is that Jesus says this about what he's just read. 
Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Now, you'll have to come back for next week's episode to see how the people respond to this audacious claim. But one thing is for sure, Jesus doesn't mince his words here. He's saying that he is this anointed one that the passage is talking about. That the Spirit of the Lord is on him to preach good news to the poor. That the Spirit of the Lord has sent him to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. The Spirit of the Lord has sent him to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There is so much that's beautiful in this short passage, and that tells us so much about what Jesus is on this earth as a human being and as the Son of God to do. But there are two things that I want to focus on that I just can't get over. First, let's take a deeper look at that word oppressed which Jesus says he's been anointed to set free those who are oppressed. The usage in this passage is a Greek word that means them that are bruised, literally broken in pieces. Its only usage here in the New Testament is in this passage. The same Hebrew word is used in Isaiah 42 verse 3, which says a bruised reed he shall not break. In fact, Let's read the first few verses of Isaiah 42 now, because this is God speaking prophetically to his people about Jesus. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on the earth. As we can see, this passage has a lot in common with what we've already learned about Jesus just from Luke's account of Jesus' baptism, in which we see the delight of the Father on him, and also about Jesus' mission on earth. God's prophetic announcements and promises about Jesus are coming true, and Jesus is letting us know that they are coming true through him. And Jesus is here, clearly, to set free those who have been oppressed, those who are bruised, to faithfully bring about justice on the earth. Praise the Lord. Okay, I said there were two things I wanted to focus on, and that was the first. Here's the second. Notice how Jesus says he's here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Seems kind of like an odd thing to say, right? I mean, what does that even mean? Well, if we look to this corresponding passage in Isaiah 61, which is the passage Jesus is reading from, although it's not numbered like that at this point in history, we see it says this in verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance. So actually, we see that Jesus doesn't finish reading the rest of the scripture here. This is important to understand what Jesus is doing and saying here, and we need to understand it fully in the context of what Isaiah originally said, which, keep in mind, the people will know because they've been hearing these scriptures their whole lives. So, Isaiah originally prophesies about a coming anointed one. Fun fact, Christ means anointed one. And by the way, it's not Jesus' last name, it's his title, for this reason. 
So Isaiah prophesies about a coming anointed one, and this anointed one will do all these things that include proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance. What Isaiah is prophesying about here is this idea that there will be a portion of time allotted to God's favor and a portion of time allotted for God's vengeance or judgment. In Isaiah's prophecy, he talks about a year of favor and a day of vengeance, but it's highly unlikely that that's meant to be literal. What it's meant to do is showcase to us that the time of favor will be considerably longer than the time of judgment. Now, let's cut to Jesus' reading of this passage of scripture in this moment of time in Luke's account. Jesus talks about this anointed one, who he reveals is in fact himself, but he only reads to the point of proclaiming the year of God's favor. Why? It's my thought that Jesus is driving home the point that the year, the time of God's favor, is now, right now, because Jesus is on the scene and setting things in motion that will bring favor to God's people, namely, salvation, release from captivity and sin, freedom from oppression, and so on. Furthermore, I believe, and many scholars do as well, that we are still in the year of God's favor. God's time of judgment is coming, and we see glimpses of what that will look like in other sections of scripture, most notably the book of Revelation. But that time hasn't happened yet, when all evil is vanquished and our enemy is locked up for good. We are in the in-between of when Jesus first arrived and completed the work on the cross of defeating death and sin for all time, and when Jesus is coming back to finish everything he started once and for all. That means that there is still time for you and me and all people to say yes to Jesus. That is the year of God's favor, as he extends mercy and kindness and patience for us to come to believe in him and what he's doing on the earth through Jesus, and what he promises still yet to do through Jesus. We see this echoed in this promise in Peter's second letter, where he explains that God is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This right now, right now in the in-between, is the year of the Lord's favor. And my prayer is that we would all repent and return and choose to be part of God's big family. Okay, so what questions do we have about this portion of Luke chapter 4? Well, I have these. Why was Jesus taken to the wilderness right away? And why was it the Spirit that brought him there? Did the Spirit intend for Jesus to be tempted, even though we know and have discussed that God is not the one who tempts us? I mean, Jesus is here for the full human experience, right? So I guess it would make sense he'd have to go through temptation as well. I'm just curious about the circumstances surrounding the temptation he endured at this juncture. And what actually takes place in the wilderness for those 40 days? We know Jesus didn't eat, but what did he do? We are left to sort of imagine this for ourselves, but I am curious. Mark's account of this wilderness season is super brief, but it does mention two things that Luke's account doesn't. That Jesus was with the wild animals, and that the angels were ministering to him. Matthew's account is much more similar to Luke's, although it does also include the ministering of angels after Jesus endures the temptations. 
So these are the things we know, but there's still so much I feel that we don't know. Regardless, that must have been a very difficult 40 days. The devil says to Jesus that all the kingdoms of the world have been given over to him and that he can give them to whoever he wants. My first question is why? Why does the devil have this authority? Every time I read about this sovereign choice of God's to allow the devil to have time on the earth, being honest, it makes me cringe. I so often wish he hadn't chosen that. But I do wonder what life would look like if we didn't have to contend with the enemy. Would we be better able to understand and connect with God? Or would we hardly see him at all because we would have no serious contrast against him since we as humans are made in God's image? Maybe this time that we're talking about the year of God's favor also includes the enemy so that we can know that God truly is good. I don't know. I still wonder, but I'm thankful that the enemy's time is temporary. I also wonder, related to all that, how God's sovereignty factored in here. We know that Jesus did not succumb to the temptation to rule and reign under the devil's authority, but I wonder how difficult it was for him to resist that, knowing he was going to face the cross, and not a long time from that point. I mean, it wouldn't be a temptation if it wasn't difficult to resist, right? What if Jesus had given in to that? Did Jesus have the kind of free will that we have as humans? Could Jesus have gone off script against the sovereign will of God? I expect God would have done something about it if he had, based on what scripture tells us of God's sovereignty, but I'm glad we will never really know because it didn't happen. Still, it's okay to be curious and ask these kinds of questions. And lastly, I want to know what Jesus just got himself into by proclaiming himself to be the anointed one that Isaiah prophesied about, which, as it happens, we'll discover in next week's episode as we see how the people respond to Jesus' teaching. So make sure to tune back in next week to find out. Thanks again so much for listening. I hope today's episode has blessed you and encouraged you in your pursuit of Jesus through his word. See you next time here at The Connection Place.